Welcome to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today our guest is Gabe Peterson. And Gabe started his career as a management consultant for Fortune 500 companies in Seattle, Washington, but realized the corporate world did not fit the vision he had for his life. And once he bought his first broken down triplex in Tacoma, Washington, he was hooked on real estate. He now owns and operates Kaizen Properties, buying and repositioning commercial real estate across the US with a special focus on self-storage, mobile home, and long-term stay RV parks and industrial properties. He's also the host of the Real Estate Investing Club podcast. So be sure to say hi to him over there. Welcome to the show, Gabe. How are you doing? Awesome. Yeah, Eileen, thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. It's just starting to rain out here in Seattle. Usually people are not excited for rain, but it has been way too hot this summer. And so I'm into it. I'm into fall. I'm ready for the rain to start coming. I heard. I heard that Seattle's been getting a lot more sunshine than normal. Yeah. yeah. We're not used to it. So the rain is welcome. So Gabe, can you share a little bit more about your background and how you got started with real estate? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So like most people in real estate, my background was not linear at all. I was actually going to law school and then didn't like that. And so you know, tried to figure out a second career. I always knew that I wanted to start my own business, but I didn't have anybody, you know, in my family or my close circle that had a business or at least that I was close with that could teach me how to do that. And so after college, after deciding not to go to law school, I ended up meeting with a friend who was at Accenture. He was doing management consulting, sounded like fun. So I tried it, got a job in consulting and immediately I was like, no, I have to, I have to make my own business. But it wasn't until seven years later that I actually jumped full time into real estate. You know, between that period and the seven year mark, I tried a whole bunch of different businesses. I tried drop shipping, I tried online marketing, every little commercial that people got in their early 20s on Facebook where it says, try this business, you'll make a million dollars. I tried those. But yeah, that first triplex out there in Tacoma, I flipped that. I think we made like 86,000 or something like that is the most I'd seen at that point. And so I was like, this is great. Just kept going down real estate, you know, buying, flipping properties, doing wholesales. And then in 2019, I flipped over to commercial and haven't looked back since. So can I ask in the beginning, when you went into the consulting industry, what was it about it then that you quickly realized that you wanted to find other side hustle? Do you want to try to figure out what you wanted to do, which was eventually get out of the consulting business? Yeah. I mean, it was fun. I'm not knocking the corporate world at all. Um, it's just I wanted to be in control of my time and I wanted to be able to choose my direction. I wanted to have more control over what I was working on and how much money I made and all that stuff. And also just the commute and in consulting, you're flying a lot. I did not like that. wasn't a huge fan. So that was kind of a negative to me. But mostly it was just I wanted to have more control of my life. You can't really do that in corporate, not to the extent that you can if you own your own business. So you mentioned that in your family and your network, you didn't really have people who you know were entrepreneurs themselves. They didn't really have a business background. So when you started to look at different ways for a side business and start to create your own type of business, how did you learn the steps to get going on these different ventures? 
You mean non-real estate related? So like non-real estate. All that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I bought courses. I joined, you know, meetup groups, masterminds. I just started doing things. Most of it was online related because that was most of the ads on the kind of businesses to start back in the day were like online, drop shipping, digital marketing, that kind of stuff. And so once I kind of learned digital marketing, that kind of led me into different avenues and I was testing out different things. I think the dropshipping store was the one that I focused most of the time on. We've got it up to about 30000 a month in revenue, but for dropshipping, your margin is super, super razor thin. And I just really did not like sitting behind a desk and like staring at my screen all day, especially because I was still working in corporate. And so I'd work and then I'd come home and I'd do dropshipping and didn't like that. But real estate really fit with what I really enjoy. There's a huge marketing component to real estate as well. And I was already pretty good at that. And then I just really like that there's something physical out there. There, It's numbers. And then there's a, just a physical building that we are dealing with, something that's a little bit more concrete. I don't have to stand, sit behind a desk all day. And so really like that fit well. So how did you get into that first triplex? And I mean, how did you transition from or were you even looking for real estate at that time when you bought it? Or how did that first deal come around for you? So like everybody in real estate, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad like in 2012 or something like that way back in the day. Um, And that kind of opened my eyes to real estate as a vehicle for wealth and also kind of a business. I didn't really ever think of real estate as a business. I just thought it as something that you you lived in or worked in or something like that. And so I read that book and that kind of put me down the path. That first property I bought, it was more... you know I read that book and I had a few people in my life who were realtors and they said that you should buy a house. And so I think also I was like watching HGTV. I can't remember. There were a few influences there. Yeah, we bought that. It was a triplex. It was a disaster. We were definitely helped by the period that we bought it in. It was after the 2008 financial crisis. Things were finally starting to uptick. And so we kind of caught that wave. If we did not catch that wave, I'm not sure we would have made a ton of money and I probably would have been dissatisfied with the experience. But it was just a crap hole, like a horrible property. There were so many things that went wrong with it, but we did end up making money and it kind of opened my eyes to the potential of real estate. So take us to now, you said back in 2019, you went into commercial. So what asset class do you focus on now? Uh, now we do self-storage, mobile home parks, RV parks. I mentioned industrial on the podcast. I haven't bought an industrial property, but just this last couple of months we've been I've been looking at it more because when you're marketing for self-storage facilities, a lot of times those properties are miscategorized as industrial and you end up talking to a lot of industrial owners. So, But yeah, mostly it's self-storage. That's the majority of our portfolio right now. And then mobile home RV. Was that the entirety of your question? I can't remember. Yes. <laughs> yes. So, you know, in today's market, or I guess not in today's market, but in general, in real estate, the two major things that we need to find is deal flow and also the financing side of it. So for you, how have you been able to find deal flow in today's market? And then we'll transition over the financing side of it and how you're able to finance those deals that you're finding and coming across. Yeah. I mean, especially in today's market, like September 25th, 2023, deal flow is more difficult than it was earlier. We're doing... Actually, I have the numbers for you right here. So from mailers to a lead is about a 1% conversion rate. And then from a lead to an offer is about a 35% conversion rate. And then from offer to closing is a 6% conversion rate. And so if you extrapolate that out to the number of mailers that you need to send in order to close a deal, it's a lot. (laughs) And so it's gone down a lot recently, mostly because sellers... They had the expectation of the five cap. They're like, I need to sell my property to five cap. That's what it's worth. 
with interest rates at 7 to 8%, it just doesn't make sense. It doesn't pencil. And so that's why people are still picking up their phones, but they're not getting to the closing table, which is also why I really like seller financing, because you can start to maneuver around the current interest rate environment. So from the mailer standpoint, that's where you focus on primarily right now to find the lead generation. And that's your main strategy right now to find the off-market deals. No, that's just the numbers that I have up on my whiteboard right now is those conversion numbers from mailers. So we do mailers, we do cold calling, we have VAs that work with us and they're on the phones all day, just you know, calling properties. And then we do cold texting. We don't do it right now because we were using Lead Sherpa. Lead Sherpa is right down because they need to you know, get in compliance with TCPA. And so we were doing cold texting though for a long time and we will do it in the future just once we got to get our systems up and running. And then we've tried things like ringless voicemail. I don't really like it because I feel it's a little bit intrusive. And so we've dropped that. And what else have we tried? I think that's it. Well, I mean, I've done things like at the very beginning, I would do those stupid little signs, what do they call bandit signs? Bandit signs. Never got a deal off bandit signs. Those things are completely waste of time. But yeah, that's mostly what we do. So out of all the different things that you've tried to create that deal flow, have you found which strategies have you found to generate the best success? It, there is no one way that works the best. It's just consistency. You need to be consistent in the outreach. Um, and then you got to hit them multiple times. And so we do two mailers for a list. And then in our dialer system, batch dialer, we make sure that the callers will call them. If they don't get them the first time, it goes back into the pool and they call them three times before they eventually it falls out of our call numbers. So we just hit them a lot. We make sure that every address that we get is thoroughly reached out to. And yeah, that's pretty much it. It's, it's not rocket science. It's just volume and it's uh, consistency. So when you're looking at a list, right, of all the potential deals out there or properties that you're wanting to touch base with or have a touch point on, when you're looking at them, how do you break up in percentages maybe? Or what's the process that you look at to decide this group of people we're going to send a mailer out to, this group of people we're going to send out, we're going to do cold calling or this group of people we're going to do cold texting? How does that process look like? I mean, every property gets them all. We all we do mailers, we do cold calling, we do texting to everything we get. And so we don't break it up by that. We create our lists based on cities that we like. If we own property in the area already, we'll be a little bit more lenient in what we buy. And so, yeah, it's mostly based... I mean, the list creation is based on the metro and then whether we own something or not. And to get the data, we use tons of different methods. We get skip traces, what we do to skip trace. And we've used other skip tracing platforms as well. We use Reonomy, Crexy. I bought just address lists from self-storage facilities and mobile home parks and all that stuff. So we just get as much data as we can. We try to get it as accurate as we can. And then we just hit it as many times as we can. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. 
Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. So what does that system look like for your first base? And then I guess, how long do you wait until you do the second base or second touch base with either a call or a text or a mailer or the next strategy? So how does that like process look like from the start to, I guess, till they either call back or you take them off the list? Um, so we do 1500 a week mailers and that is split between new mailers and then people who need a second touch. That same data goes into our dialer and our texting platform. And so that just gets recycled until they've been touched three times. And one VA can go through like a thousand, really depends on which VA it is, but thousand to 2000 numbers a week will go through. And so you're just recycling the data and the three calls is every number will get three calls until it's kicked out of the bucket. And unless, you know, if somebody's already picked up, we're not going to call them again. If there is no answer, then we call them three times. And that's only for the first two numbers of an address of a property. And so if you get, you know, when you skip trace of the list, you're going to get 10 numbers. We only take the first two because we don't want to waste our time with all the other 10. We want to try to hit more properties versus you know, really dive down into numbers that are most likely not related to the property. And it's a real big problem with like mobile home parks and RV parks, because people, a lot of the times when you skip trace those properties, you're going to come back with numbers that are people that actually reside at the the park because they have their mailing address associated with that park. And so if you go down more than, you know, two numbers into the list, you just, it's just garbage. And so we just try to stick with the first two and we just keep recycling it over and over. So when you get replies back from different sellers, do you ever receive any angry replies or people saying, hey, don't contact me anymore? And what does your process look like when you receive one of those calls or uh, text messages? Yeah, I mean, we get those and we just take them off the list. There's a little button in the platform that we use that says company list DNC. And so we just put it into that. It's a company related DNC. Now they're in our DNC list. And so they won't get called again. We've had people actually call about mailers too. They'll be like, don't send me another mailer. And we're like, I don't know, just throw it away. <laughs> we're not, I don't see mailers as intrusive. And so those ones, we don't really have a DNC process for mailers. And I apologize for people out there who get multiple mailers from us and you just you really don't want to throw it away. So I feel you. We don't have a process for that yet though. So after you get, let's say one of these deals, actually, somebody contacts you back and says, Hey, you know, I'm interested in learning more. What does that process look like? And how do you even start the conversation about seller financing or another financing solution? Yeah. So the process, usually the VA is going to be the first contact. You know, we've instructed them to tell the seller, you know, I am a sales associate from Kaizen Properties. And I'm just reaching out to see if you have interest in selling. If you are, I'll connect you with the RVP of acquisitions and you guys can have a deeper conversation. So the first touch point is always super basic and they're really just looking for positive intent. Um, do they have an intent to sell? Is there any any positive intent at all? Even if they say, you know, I'm, I'm not interested right now, maybe in the future, then we're like, great, we'll put you in our CRM system. We'll reach back out three months, six months later. So that's that. How do we go into financing was the second part of that question, I think, or talk about financing. Yeah, seller financing. I've had really great success with getting sellers to agree to seller financing. And usually it just comes down to showing them that it's the best way forward. And especially in now in today's environment, it is the best way forward. I can show them my underwriting and be like, hey, I mean, look at my Excel sheet. This is my underwriting. You can see your P&L here. This is your net income. We were to get 8% debt on this property. The asking price that you're asking right now does not make sense. And I can show them 
it does not make sense. And so then I go into, but if you want, if you're really adamant about that purchase price, we can keep that purchase price, but we'll have to do seller financing at a lower interest rate. We've been having success with people agreeing to that. And so if you just put it in terms of their interests, a lot of times they are super held up on a specific purchase price for whatever reason. You know, you can make it happen with seller financing. I've even sold my own property seller financing. The best way to really good way to do it for both seller and buyer, if a seller wants a specific purchase price and they're so adamant about getting that purchase price and they don't want a really low interest rate, you can just tell them, we're going to have to drop the interest rate obviously from 8% or else it won't work, but we can drop it just a little bit and then do interest only. And so you're not going to be having any principal payments within the monthly mortgage that you'll receive, but it'll be much lower, which will allow us buyer to execute our strategy because there's going to be more capital coming in and we're not going to be, you know, the debt service coverage ratio is going to be a little bit higher. We want at least 1.25 DSCR just to make sure that we're not going to, shit's not going to hit the fan. We're going to have to come with money out of our own pocket. So yeah, does that answer your question? Yes. So going back to the purchase price for a moment there, when the seller comes back and they're interested in learning more, who gives out the first purchase price? Do they say, I want this price for my property? Or do you offer a price first? We always ask if they have a price in mind first. Most of the time, they're going to say, no, just (laughs) tell me what you think it's worth. And if they're adamant about not giving us the purchase price, then we'll we'll make an offer for them. The first offer from both sides, if it's the seller giving the first offer, it's going to be inflated. If it's the buyer giving the first offer, it's going to be you know, a little bit under market just so there's wiggle room. Everybody wants to negotiate. And so if anybody takes the first offer, they're never going to be happy. And so you want to give them an opportunity to go up. And so we'll, we'll usually get the price that we want to buy it at, undercut it by like 5% and then give them that offer. And then they can go, you know, they're like, oh no. And so we can go up that 5% and both parties will be happy. Once the seller agrees to a seller financing and it makes sense to them, once the seller agrees to like a seller financing option, is there a standard way that you typically like to structure the deal? Yeah. I mean, we like low down payment, interest only, balloon in preferably five plus years. That's what I would prefer. Um, But it can vary from that. Sometimes they want principal and interest. This was an interesting scenario. There was a park we bought in Moses Lake, Washington. The seller absolutely wanted 5,000 a month. He just had this number in his mind. He was like, I need 5,000 a month. And so we ran the numbers and we were like, we can give it to you, but it'll be 2.8. I think it was 2.8% interest. And he said, yes. And so we amortized it over... I think the other requirement was that he wanted it paid. He did not want a balloon. He wanted to amortize over the full schedule. And he wanted it paid off within like 10 years or something like that. Or I can't remember. But we ended up getting a 2.8% interest with 11-year amortization period. And it, it hit exactly at his 5000 per month number. And it was great for us because 2.8%, you can't find that. Well, this is when we got this in 2020, I think. So interest rates back then were in the threes. So it wasn't super crazy. Now it's fantastic. And we're definitely not getting into that. You can really pull on a lot of levers to make everything work. So Gabe, what's next for you? What's your next focus? We're going down the same path that we've been going down. We're just trying to acquire more properties, looking for good deals. I just sold a couple properties. And so we have some money getting ready for what I think will be you know, a good opportunity to buy assets. And so we're continuing our mailing, looking for self-storage facilities, mobile home RV parks. And now we're dipping into industrial. Yeah, just looking for good deals and keeping them going forward. And the strategy to find the off-market deals, you're utilizing it across all the different asset classes that you're involved in. Yeah. Yep. Same thing. So Gabe, how has real estate investing impacted your life? 
Uh, I mean, it's the business I chose. I absolutely love it. It's a lot of fun. It got me, you know, gave me the wealth I needed in order to quit my corporate job and live the life that I wanted. And it's completely changed from where I was. It's impacted in many ways. And what is the one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? Mm. When you buy a property, actually, there's two. I'm going to say two things. First, when you're doing your due diligence, make sure you understand the hyper local demographic information about where you're buying it. And I'm talking like the corner that you're buying this property on. Make sure you understand that that area. You might have a picture, a good idea of what a, a city's like. It has good numbers, double digit growth, low property crime, yada, yada, yada. But maybe there's a small pocket in that city that is just shit. And there's property crimes through the roof, negative appreciation, everything you don't want. So make sure you understand exactly where you're buying a property because Real estate's super local. And even if it's in a metro that's popping, might not be a good deal. So that's one thing. And the second one is when you buy a property, have more capital on hand than you think you need. I've done this. I haven't learned this lesson yet and I need to. Whenever I buy a property, I do my underwriting and I calculate what I need for CapEx. And then I'm like, okay, that's good. What I should be doing is adding 20%, even 25, 30% to that number for CapEx and using that as my baseline going into the property. Just because things are going to hit the fan. It always happens. I can't remember what, what law it is. Like if something bad can happen, it will happen. I can't remember which one it is, but things are going to hit the fan. And so you need to be ready with capital to make repairs, to do improvements, whatever it is. And so come into the acquisition with more money than you think you need. And what is the one thing that sets the successful people apart in real estate investing? One thing. I'm going to give two again. <laughs> All right. Just grit, determination, perseverance, whatever you want to call it. Just the ability to keep going when things don't go your way. That's number one. And then number two is ability to network and meet people and learn from other people and not get caught up on like having control over every property because you're going to grow much quicker if you partner with other people. So I think those are the good two. Okay. But where can our listeners find out more about you and what you're doing? Yeah. The best place is the podcast, therealestateinvestingclub.com. The Real Estate Investing Club is a podcast we run. We talk all asset classes just like you guys do here. And so it's probably the best place to find me. Email is gabe at therealestateinvestingclub.com. Website is therealestateinvestingclub.com. The company's website is Kaizen Properties USA, but just go to the Real Estate Investing Club and you'll find us there. Fantastic. Gabe, thank you so much for all your time today. I appreciate it. Yeah, Eileen, thanks for having me on. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. If you're anything like Zayla and me and believe that real estate investing is a great way to create passive income and build long-term wealth, check out our free apartment syndication due diligence checklist for passive investors at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Zayla and I created this checklist for ourselves as we evaluated different multifamily syndication opportunities as a passive investor. So we would love to share it with you so you can use it as a resource as well. Download your free copy today at bonavestcapital.com forward slash checklist. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonavestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.